After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptised. Now John also was baptising at Enon near Salem, because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptised. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the manner, matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptising and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the word of God, for God gives the spirit without limit. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Many thanks, Marigold, and it's wonderful to share on this occasion with you and, um, and Steve. Um, in case you don't know me, I'm Jake. I'm the other curate um, now at St Paul's, and um, it's, it's uh, my privilege to, uh, to preach today from our next chunk in John chapter three. Um, let's begin with a prayer, a prayer from Psalm 19. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Um, I don't, uh, well, I'll admit it, I don't like losing. I don't like losing competitions. I don't like losing at sport. Um, and although I'm not very good at, it, good at it, I don't even like losing at Scrabble. I don't like losing anything really. Um, I also don't like losing out. I don't like losing attention. I don't like losing respect. And I don't like losing control. But the real reason I don't like losing is not just because I'm competitive, although that's true as well. It's because it is really my natural self, my natural instinct, my inner nature. And do you know what? The truth is, it's not just me. It's you too. You may not care about sport or scrabble or whatever, but instinctively, you care most about yourself. You and I are self-centered. We are self 
oriented. Naturally, we turn inwardly, making ourselves the most important thing in our world. Now, I don't know how you feel about hearing that. I hope we don't lose anyone uh, from the Zoom meeting as a result. Perhaps it makes you angry or, or dismissive because you don't believe it. Or perhaps it makes you feel a bit demoralized because you do. Because even if you do recognize that about your natural self, as I certainly do, you don't know how you can change. How do I break the cycle of self-centeredness I'm naturally inclined to? Perhaps you're just wondering how this passage about John the Baptist has anything to do with, with all of that. Well, I hope things become clear as we proceed, as we discover how a life bound to Jesus, bound to Jesus Christ, means true freedom, freedom from that crippling effect of self-worship, produces lasting joy, and brings about what we were made for, love and worship of God. So let's dive in to this passage in um, John chapter 3 from verse 22. If anyone had the right to feel hard done by, it was John the Baptist. Uh, he's not the same John who wrote this gospel. He's a different John. You see, John the Baptist was the popular preacher prophet at the time. Matthew, in his gospel, um, wrote that multitudes flocked to John. Loads of people were baptized by him. He had his own disciples and they even called him rabbi or teacher. He even came to the attention of a local king, King Herod. John the Baptist was the popular prominent figure at the time. And then Jesus walked onto the scene and things changed. The crowds that previously flocked to John started flocking to Jesus instead which left John's disciples feeling a bit put out, um, jealous even. They say in verse 26, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. Young people, has your mum or, or dad or someone else ever given a present and, or made a cake for someone else and you thought, that's not fair. You've not given that to me. Or perhaps others at work, you haven't been recognized or even promoted and someone else has at your expense. And you think that's not fair. Well, I think that's kind of how John's disciples are feeling. They don't like seeing their mentor play second fiddle to Jesus. They were fine when John was supporting Jesus's early ministry when he didn't have many followers. John was even the one to baptize Jesus. But now he's taking people away from them and they're not happy about it. Jesus seems to be stealing disciples. How would you feel if you were John or, or one of his followers? Well, what we have in John's reply is a beautifully presented portrait of true Christ, Christian discipleship. All that we've seen so far in, in chapter three and before that actually, about being born in the spirit, um, Chapter three, one to eight, about looking to the sun and about living in the light is now enacted in the flesh by John the Baptist. Verse 27. To this, John replied, a person can only receive what is given them from heaven. 
you yourselves testify or can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. John the Baptist's disciples weren't wrong to follow John and to join in his, his ministry, at least at first. He was indeed a man sent by God. He was commissioned by God to be a witness to the coming Messiah. What was skewed, according to John the Baptist himself, was their perspective. Rather than seeing things in relation to God, what's given from heaven, they were seeing things in relation to self. So they took good things, things given by God, like the ceremonial laws which they were arguing about, or John the Baptist's ministry, and they made them end in themselves. Things that they could perhaps manipulate and perform on their own terms, that they could commodify and control. Things that would serve their own agenda and build their own reputations and status. Put simply, their religious lives were self-centered, not God-centered. They were motivated by self-interest. And there's a word for that. It's legalism. Legalism. But before we start bashing John's disciples too heavily about being overly legalistic, we should also turn the spotlight on ourselves. Sometimes we get the word legalism wrong. We think it refers to people who try to earn God's favor through their good works, and it can be that. But as one theologian, Grant McCaskill, points out, legalism is not simply a card-carrying commitment to salvation by works. More fully, legalism is a way of taking God's good gifts, even things like scripture, the Bible, and our various ministries, and using them to control the way people think about us, or worse, to try and control the way God thinks about us. It commodifies God's gifts for self-gain. Whether that gain is reputation or recognition or power or control or status or whatever. And unfortunately, the problem isn't just out there in other tribes or groups within the church or, or beyond. It's also a problem in here. As individuals, as a church, St. Paul's Banbury, and as evangelicals more widely. It can appear ugly and it can appear respectable and even humble at times, self-effacing. What John the Baptist does so beautifully for us is to show how our Christian lives can and should be identified with Jesus Christ and his work in us instead of our natural selves. I had the privilege of being a best man at my friend Johnny's wedding a couple summers ago, and it took place down in Foy in, in Cornwall, which is a stunning setting, beautiful, um, expansive water looking out um, to, to sea from the coast. And um, it, was, it was truly magnificent. But the bit I loved most was when I got to watch Johnny meet the eyes of his bride as she walked down the aisle towards him. It was my privilege and joy to see Johnny and Beth, his bride, take center stage. All eyes were on them. And that was fantastic. It was a joy. Because although my job was to be in the background, not in the limelight, I still got to share and participate in something really special. 
Just listen to John the Baptist again. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. The reason that John the Baptist is so happy to fade away is because his ministry has always been about another. And the same was true of those who went before John the Baptist, Abraham, Moses, David, and the prophets, their ministries, and they were about another, one who was to come. It's also true of those who come after John the Baptist, every minister of the gospel, including Steve. You know, on the day of his commissioning, the ministry of Steve is in fact not Steve's ministry. It's right that we recognize his calling into this role and rejoice with him on this day. But the reason it's so important is because it's not really about him at all. It doesn't belong to him or any one of us. Should we try to take possession of the church, something that belongs to another, that would in fact make us spiritual adulterers? Because Christ alone is the bridegroom of his people the church. He is the one who lovingly draws us out of the wilderness of sin and idolatry into the vineyards of, of life, which is an image from the book of Hosea, which we read earlier. He's the one who makes us, self-centered though we are, his precious bride forever. Our message and ministry is of God in Jesus Christ. So everything must be in relation to him. But you know, that's not all. Because to identify ourselves with Jesus as his friends, for those with delegated ministerial authority in, in, the, in the terms of this text, or as his bride, the church, is not just about a change of status. Jesus doesn't just give his people his, his name, Christian. You know, it's not even just about our forgiveness of sins. Wonderful that those, though those things are. For on their own, a change of status and a declaration of forgiveness do not bring about a change of heart, the type of change that moves us from self-love to the love and joy expressed by John the Baptist here, especially when he says in verse 30, he must become greater, I must become less. On the surface, that's a really strange thing to say, because in himself, Jesus cannot become greater. He's the perfect man and, and God the Son. So what does John mean? Well, for Jesus to become greater is for him to become greater in us. In other words, he increasingly becomes for us the one who gives and shapes our lives. And for us to become less doesn't mean that we cease to be real people or decrease in value in some way. Rather, we decrease from turning in on ourselves, from that deep-seated self-centeredness, by increasingly receiving from his fullness. To decrease, to become less, is to receive. Augustine puts it brilliantly. He says, my being consists in listening, his in speaking. For I need enlightening, he is the light. I am an ear 
he is the word. Or in the language of Paul the Apostle, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. He must become greater. I must become less. And as we realize what's going on in those words, it should offer us a huge amount of hope for change. Because it means that our Christian lives are nothing less than the unfolding of Christ's identity in us. If you want to break the cycle of self-centeredness in yourself and to experience the joy that John the Baptist felt despite losing attention, respect, status in the eyes of others, you won't do it by becoming a better version of yourself. You won't even do it by merely imitating Jesus, asking yourself the question, what would Jesus do? Because you can't do what he did when you're dislocated from Christ. It's not how our natural selves are wired. We're frail. We're creatures. We're prone to sin and legalism. By the way, you won't also do it by just getting out of the way of Jesus and somehow, somehow hiding yourself from your God, uh, hiding your God-given personality from others. Rather, in life and in ministry, Christians participate in the reality of what we already are those who belong to Christ, the Son and perfect man, in whom we live by the Spirit. We are in Christ. He is our hope. Not just for our way into the kingdom, the kingdom of God is also realized, made real in us as we are incorporated into his life and even share in his ministry. He must become greater. I must become less. It's entirely apt that these are the last words of John the Baptist in this gospel. He disappears from our sight because what's a best man to do when the bridegroom arrives? And in the last few verses, um, John chapter 3, verses 31 to 36, we've got John the gospel writer's theological commentary on what we've just seen and heard. And although it takes us even deeper into these realities. We're just going to reflect on them very briefly. And the message in them is this. Life itself belongs to Jesus. So why go anywhere else? The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. As we've all heard recently from teaching on the Nicene Creed, Jesus Christ, the Son and Messiah, is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. He is the Word who was God and who was with God in the beginning, John's prologue. So he's above all in terms of origin. He's the one who comes to us from heaven. But that also means that he's above all in terms of authority and truth. Even though John the Baptist was a credible witness that Jesus was the Messiah, he, like us, was still limited by his creatureliness. He doesn't see or know everything. So his testimony was incomplete. However, when Jesus, the author of life himself, comes along, he testifies, verse 32, to what he has seen and heard. 
That is, he testifies to what he's seen and heard from the life of the triune God in all eternity. By the way, it's not that God somehow has body parts like us. He doesn't have eyes and ears like we do. Nevertheless, this human language describes something about the eternal son's nature that is really important. Jesus is the word of God and the perfect witness. He reveals God to us. And the next couple of verses show as the son, um, he is in full and unhindered communion with the father and the Holy Spirit. And yet, verse 32, no one accepts his testimony. Now, isn't that utterly shocking? It's tragic. Across the board, because of that inward desire for self-gain and self-worship, everyone naturally wants to reject God, to reject Jesus Christ. Which is why God's wrath remains on those who don't believe in the Son. That might sound harsh in today's culture, but by definition, to not receive the love of God is to receive his wrath. Put another way, to reject the one who gives life is to reject life itself. And that has present and future implications. In the present, it means remaining trapped in that joyless cycle of self-oriented sin, which always competes and divides and is never satisfied. And in the future, it is to receive the personal wrath of the Holy God who came into our world and yet was rejected. But together with this warning, there is a hope-filled promise. John 3, 36. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. There is life in Jesus Christ. And again, with this, there is both a present and future consequence. In the present, through our marital union with Christ, the true bridegroom, we are brought into fellowship with the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Something, and, and that something will be manifest in our lives as we're transformed um, in, in joy and in hope. And in the future, that identity and participation in Christ will be magnificently realized in all its fullness. So that is the Christian gospel. The gospel is not just about deliverance from sin and God's wrath, though of course those things are true. Nor is it just about the benefits we receive, like entry into heaven. The gospel can't be narrowed down to a mere transaction. The gospel of Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ. It is about our deliverance to him, to the perfect bridegroom, in whom is life itself. He must become greater, I must become less. Let's close in prayer. We praise you, Lord, for Jesus Christ, God, the beloved Son of the Father, the Word who became flesh, the light that shines in the darkness, the Lamb of God who takes away sins, the Messiah, and the Bridegroom in whom we, the Church, are loved and betrothed and united. Would Jesus 
be so magnified in us that we might be filled with that same joy as John the Baptist and continually receive from him, from his fullness of life, today and always. In his name we pray. Amen.